You're listening to Podcasts with Park Rangers, a show where we explore the importance of our national parks and historic sites with those who live and work in them every day. We'll learn about history, science, and the beauty of nature from a unique perspective. I'm your host, Lucas VK. Today we interview Ranger Eddie Childers, a wildlife biologist and resource park ranger at Badlands National Park. You know, sometimes I can look out this window here and I can look at that Badlands against the blue sky and it almost looks like it's cut. You know, it's such a, an abrupt between that stark brown and, you know, the striations and then the blue, blue sky. And to be able to see all these different wildlife species, you know, at all different times of the year. And it's uh, heavily visited in the summer, but wintertime, it's, it's a mecca here, you know? It's just lovely to be here. You're, you're in a wilderness, you know? Stay tuned. We'll talk to Eddie about the park's megafauna, buffalo, bighorn sheep, and the endangered black-footed ferret. If you've been enjoying our podcast, we hope to keep this show on the road with your support. If you'd like to help out, find our Patreon page in the show notes or visit podcastswithparkrangers.com. If you look closely on a drive through Badlands National Park, you'll see bighorn sheep perched atop the jagged peaks of the park's famous formations. The sheep are difficult to spot because their brown and gray coats act as camouflage against the red, browns, and grays of the landscape. Many adaptations make these megafauna unique. Specialized split hooves allow them to climb steep slopes up to heights which seem impossible for the typical human to reach. As for their namesake feature, curly horns wrap around the male ram's faces and are as particular as their hooves. The horns weigh up to 30 pounds and take almost eight years to grow to full size. If you consider the average lifespan of a bighorn sheep is 10 years, their horns take nearly their whole lives to develop. During mating season, rams fight each other to show dominance and earn the right to mate with the female ewes. They charge each other at 40 miles per hour with an impact that can crush a car door. A thick bony skull absorbs force of the collision and protects their brains. Fights last for hours and can be heard over a mile away. Finally, one ram relents, and the other wins the right to mate. Six months later, the lambs are born. Within hours of birth, lambs are able to walk with their mothers, and you can see them every spring at Badlands National Park. But this wasn't always the case. In the 1920s, hunters killed the last bighorn sheep in the Badlands. And so it remained until 1964, when 22 Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep were moved from Rocky Mountain National Park to the Badlands. Animals are moved often between national parks. Sometimes it's to reintroduce an animal like the bighorn sheep, which for one reason or another no longer exist in the area. Other times it's to promote genetic diversity of a stagnant herd of animals. Why else might animals be moved between parks? To find out more, we speak with wildlife biologist and resource ranger, Eddie Childers. My name's Eddie Childers. Welcome to Badlands National Park, world-class park. 
Eddie's hobbies drew him to the unique career of park biologist in the Badlands. Well, being a biologist, I, I like to be outside and hunting and fishing and, you know, all those types of outdoor hiking activities. And all my life I've done that and kind of drew me to the profession, you know. When I was young, I remember my mother saying, uh, you can't make a living on the riverbank, you know, because I was always hunting or fishing or something, and I figured it out. You could. <laughs> He's been with the Park Service 28 years and at Badlands National Park since 1999. The focus on wildlife has been a passion of his since he was a kid. You know, I always had that desire, and I remember growing up, you know, just focusing on forestry and wildlife. You know, went to Virginia Tech, majored in that. My professor said, you know, if you're really going to work in wildlife, you need at least a master. So mm -hmm. I just stayed in school and was able to lob on to a good project. And, you know, just I didn't stop and work. I just continued on through and finished up my, my master's degree and started working uh, for the university for a while and then for the uh, Soil Conservation Service and then the Fish and Wildlife Service, and then the National Park Service. So okay, been with a few different agencies. Yeah. Yeah. All having to do with public lands. Yes. Primarily. Yep. Yeah. Soil scientist and wildlife biologist and did a lot of GIS work too for a while. And then at Redwood, I was a wildlife biologist and okay. just part of the part of the job now. Yeah. <laughs> you have to be kind of a jack of all trades really as a biologist. Yeah. 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 I can imagine there are so many different studies within these these areas especially a big place like badlands National oh yeah park. like i said world-class park and just incredible what we have here for for wildlife yeah and you are the park biologist here what does that entail for this position here at badlands well my position now i oversee all the wildlife related programs and also all the vegetation ecology programs here too so okay. Uh, it's kind of a broad umbrella that my uh, area of expertise and er my area of responsibility, you know, lies in. I'm also the park NEPA coordinator and uh, wilderness coordinator. Okay. NEPA is the National Environmental Policy Act. Ah. And so that is the legal stipulation of doing any projects on public lands there has to be a NEPA review so okay. I do a lot of that and for a lot of my projects too when I have something big coming up I'll, I'll have to do either internal or do external environmental assessments for you uh, know, some of my projects so yeah my job is broad and you know I we have the blackfoot ferret here which is most endangered land mammal in North America. So mm -hmm. actively involved in that. We have our national land mammal here, the American bison. Right. And the second largest population in all of national park lands. Is that so? Okay. Right behind Yellowstone. Uh, we have a thousand animals approximately out there now. Okay. Before calving, uh, we have one of the healthiest bighorn sheep populations in uh, the western U.S. now. And and we have a, a project going on now, you know, looking at uh, disease surveillance and survival of, you know, young lambs and uh, we're going to follow that up. So we've got a lot of good uh, 
wildlife species to focus on that yeah. uh, are well funded. So a lot of my job too involves writing uh, research proposals or working with professors uh, jointly and, and uh, they'll draft up a proposal and then I'll put it into our system so that we can get money because all these things cost money. Sure, you know? yeah. And uh, one of the biggest projects that I was involved in started back in 2014 for the American Bison here, and it was a Centennial Challenge project, and we were able to generate almost three-quarter of a million dollars of private project funds from World Wildlife, National Park Foundation, Defenders of Wildlife. Wow, okay. And it was so approached a, a lot of organizations for this. Yes. Hey, this was back in 2014. Started writing the proposal, had assistance from many of my colleagues from the regional office. We had to compete for it, but um, that that money came through and uh, they matched $450,000 of it. Our Park Service funds did. So wow. it was one of those, you know, celebrating yeah, 200 land, years. Landmark deal there. Yeah. So, yeah. and now we're. And then the centennial you, you mentioned, of course, that was in 2016. Yep. Yep. And so, you know, they got that project going and it was funded to 2016, 2017. We started the fence work and we're fencing uh, 43 miles approximately of our park boundary in the north unit here and uh, opening up 23,000 plus acres of uh, land, more grazing land mm -hmm. for the bison to for roam the bison, on. Right. So, you know, population ecologists, they're, they're big on that number of 1,000 hmm. to keep your genetic heterozygosity, your genetic diversity, yeah. that mix, and a thousand animals is kind of the, the tipping point where, where you should try to keep your ungulate populations at if, if you want to keep them in a healthy situation genetically. Yeah, so they need to be at or above that thousand mark. Is yeah. Gold and, standard there. Yeah, it, and you know, there, and that's unfortunate. We do have a lot of other parks with lower numbers of mm -hmm. animals, but it can be done through moving animals around. And we've been discussing that with, uh, I was just in a meeting last week with all the Department of Interior bison holders, if you will, the land managers that have bison on their properties with Fish and Wildlife Service and the Park Service. And uh, so there are other populations around in this area. It's yes, not just the... when Cave, they have yeah. about 400. Theodore Roosevelt, they have two to 300 in, in the South unit. and couple hundred in the north unit but we have one of the largest populations and it's nice too with this opening up of more land it kind of eases the the burden if you will on the the sage creek unit of the badlands wilderness area where our bison are you know during a wet season we can comfortably hold a thousand animals but during dry seasons probably about half that much Mm, so okay. we have to time our bison surplusing operation overabundance operation and you know we we round them up and we we uh distribute those animals to native american tribes was telling us a bit about this bison roundup yeah it's a good hand a good way of team building everybody in the park gets together all of our divisions that week and it's a lot of preparation you know it's a lot of work but it, uh, it's the best thing for the resource and, yeah. and for the bison themselves too. 
and they're rounded up and then part of the population is brought to surrounding areas yeah so I, that it doesn't impact the grazing area here as heavily yeah yeah we we uh distribute them to to native american tribes and okay. uh, either to the ogallala sioux tribe to our south or through other tribes um using the intertribe intertribal buffalo council as the clearinghouse and uh over the last oh 30 years 40 years we've distributed almost 5,000 bison to 27 different Native American tribes throughout the United States. Wow. And those have been to start their own little bison herds, you right. know. Yeah. So the Badlands bison are all over the map. <laughs> <laughs> They're just prolific. Yes. Getting everywhere. Yes. Yeah. So uh, here and in some of those other territories, there's fencing that goes on that keeps those bison population within those certain areas. I imagine the the other tribe populations kind of allow open grazing, or do they have a different they have approach, fences too. I imagine? They yep, do? Okay. yep, they do, and that's one of the jobs of the Intertribal Buffalo Council. They look at proposals from different tribes and make sure they have land and fencing and water resources. Oh, okay. Yeah, the only free-ranging herd I know at the time is the Yellowstone yeah. herd and oh yeah they they own that park <laughs> yeah they're everywhere they <laughs> so with the expansion here will the bison be allowed to roam fairly freely within that fenced area are they going to be everywhere or are we going to find them on, on roadways or? Yeah, yeah yeah you will okay. and and that's one thing about it right now they're they're at that western end of the park and mostly in the Sage Creek unit of the Badlands Wilderness area. Yeah. So now they can come eastward and they can come where the 240 Loop is, which is a blacktop road yeah. where most of our visitation occurs, you know, that approximately one million people a year. Those people will be able to see these bison off the hardtop rather than that gravel road, you know. Now they'll be able to see them and interact. We're going to construct some wayside exhibits, some more pull-offs. Okay. Should be a really, really positive thing for our park, yeah. <laughs> I want to get to more on the bison and more on obviously other animals, sure. um, which we've touched on. You did mention the bighorn sheep and how they are a very healthy population. Yes. You guys are doing some parasite type studies with these bighorn sheep or yeah some baseline disease work. resistance yes stuff. okay yeah we're really fortunate to have bighorn sheep here you know back in the mid-60s there was a cooperative agreement between the game fishing parks and the park service and we were starting a population here and we had them pinned up in an area near the Kanata picnic area in the park okay and they were going to raise the animals and put them in other places in South Dakota, but they started dying, a lot of them, and they had uh, this bacterial pasturella, some kind of, you know, infection. Okay. So they just let them roam free, you know, open the gate up, and uh, that population from the mid-60s to the 80s, it was early 1980, that the first actual survey of bighorn sheep was performed here at Badlands National Park. After 20 years or so of yeah. free roaming. There were like 20 or 30 animals and uh, uh, 
when they released and opened up the gate, there were something like 13 total animals alive. Oh boy. But when you look at the effective population size, the, the number of animals that are actually contributing new genetic material to, the, to their offspring, it was a, an N of like six. Ooh. So you had this real tight genetic bottleneck is what geneticists call it. Yeah, okay. And so uh, Francis Singer, was a USGS researcher that worked here in the 90s. And uh, his hypothesis was he did a lot of collaring and, and monitoring of the sheep with some technicians, that that population of bighorn sheep just kind of floundered there. And it wasn't until genetic drift occurred and they were finally able to break out of that bottleneck that we started seeing an increase in population size. Mm, and how long did that take? to the late 90s. Oh, wow. Then we had a crash. We had a, a disease epidemic yeah. of pasturella, some kind of, you know, a couple were tested and were positive. And so we went back down and we remained low for a long period of time. Through the 90s as well? Or? Yes. They yeah. did move some animals uh, when they were low, captured them and moved some over here to the Cedar Pass area, moved some to the south unit. So you wouldn't have all your eggs in one basket. Right. If you had a disease, one little subpopulation would die out, but you'd have the other two that were protected. Yeah. In 2004, I'd been here five years, and I had some money from the Cannon Corporation, and I, I would constantly go to these bighorn sheep meetings every other year and talk to other biologists and the biologists here with the South Dakota Game and Fish. We're able to broker a deal. I had like $30,000 of Canon money mm. to pay for helicopter and overtime for the New Mexico game and fish to capture sheep and bring them back to South Dakota. And so it was kind of a three-way deal with New Mexico, South Dakota game and fish and the park service to get the money and spend it down there. Yeah. And we all went down and we had two pickup trucks and horse trailers. It's a ways to go. <laughs> yeah, and we drove all night bringing the animals back here and released them in the Kanata picnic area. That happened in 04, we collared them. I had a PhD student here working on the project with me, Teresa Zimmerman, great, great lady, uh, a lot of energy, did a lot of great work. And she looked at those genetic bottlenecks over time, she, she looked at old skull tissue we had from the 60s and you know more recent things, and she found there were three genetic bottlenecks that had occurred in Badlands from the beginning. Oh. And so... Um, that explains the long-term... The long kind the of... long weight and fluctuations. Yeah. And, yeah. and so we, we did introduce 23 new animals of ewes, and some lambs and a few young rams. We had family groups together. Okay. And we gave seven ewes to the game and fish. I kind of wrote an IOU, you know, we'll give you some more once our population is, is back up to speed. And we did this year, we gave them 12, oh, which went to the Custer State Park. Uh -huh. Their population of bighorn sheep had been decimated by a bacterial infection from domestics, you know, so we paid them back. We had a little note from the governor, you know, thank you for doing this, you know, made <laughs> us feel good. But at the time we did the study this year, we've done it two years now, we've captured bighorn sheep females and we've uh, implanted them with vaginal implant transmitters. 
vits, we call them. Okay. So when they drop their lamb, I have a couple grad students, they go out and they'll collar the you lamb. Know right away. And you get the little lamb collared and you follow the lamb through at least a year of its life. And we know, you know, we had last year eight predated on by coyotes. Yeah. A couple of them just fell in little cracks naturally. And, and then, you know, the other 10 are still living. And uh, this year we got 22. I just talked to Austin this morning, 22 collared so far this year. Wow. Okay. So behind that is the baseline disease. You know, we've tested all these animals we've caught for positive titers and, and we found that our animals have been exposed, but they're just not shedding bacteria, which is, you know, we're real fortunate to have this healthy population or they have better genetics being that, uh, you know, I brought uh, this more recent group, brought them from New Mexico. The original group came from Colorado, Pikes Peak. Oh, okay. So you have that going on, you know, mm -hmm. that, you know, a little bit of genetic mixing there between two lineages, if you, if you will, if you sure. define it that way. Yeah. And we have another proposal written and in the mill now, hopefully how to get funded to follow up on this study. And what we're going to look at there is not only the Badlands bighorn sheep, but bighorn sheep throughout South Dakota. We're going to try to manage the sheep here as a meta population, okay. you know, as one big population with the Custers and your uh, Elk Mountain and Nebraska, we'll know which animals to move around, which are more disease resistant, which ones have the best genetics. In the same comparable way we're trying to do with our Department of Interior Bison Management Group, right. you know, manage those as a meta population between the seven DOI entities that have bison. So, you know, we're, we're just it's looking a team at team effort. It is. And we have modeling going on and uh, a lot, a lot of people smarter than me that are doing this, but we're, we're all pitching in and working together. And, mm -hmm. and it's big these days when dollars are so short and hard to come by to it, you get that synergy and you get more bang by by working together, you know, oh, I yeah. work with Game and Fish all the time and uh, they work with us and other parks and, you know, you just can't get anything done without working with each other and playing nice with each other, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Getting lots of uh, researchers in as well as these different agencies and departments that are, yes. that are working together to, yeah, kind of collaboratively. Yeah, could not do it alone. Excellent. So... Are they becoming more resistant now to some of the parasites or the diseases that they, well, they seemed susceptible to? Yeah, we you know, don't some know. Some decades ago. Yeah, we don't know. Our population seems to be, but right. other places in the West, they've just been decimated. Really? You know? Okay. There was the theory, and it still is ongoing, there are some females that might be resistant, really super resistant, okay. but they're still shedding. So if that's, they call them, quote, super shedders. So they're out there in the population resistant. Oh, they're happy, but they're shedding it and they're killing everybody else. So mm. there's been a lot of emphasis on going in. and. So what is the, the process of shedding um, with this? It, it's it's uh, aerosol or okay. through the fecal, you know, it's like a bacteria, you know, so nose to nose. And, I see. And, uh, or just sneezing, you know. Right. And, so uh, they're carrying these bacteria 
while they may be resistant, resistant. to them, they're just yeah. spreading them about as well. Yeah, kind of like uh, up in Wall, there's someone up there that is resistant to strep, huh. but that town is the hotspot of strep throughout all of South Dakota, and they're <laughs> trying to find, they tested my wife, they thought she was the <laughs> carrier, because oh, she really? never gets strep, my kids had strep, but she wasn't, but they're, you know, there's somebody up there that has strep, and they, they, they never it, show symptoms, never but, they... sh but everybody else is always going to the druggist to get antibiotics. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> but yeah, it's good to hear that the sheep are doing better. But it's mm -hmm. an ongoing, ongoing group effort, and we keep fighting the fight. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you've also put in a, a really good fight in bringing a species from the brink of extinction, and you said it's it's one of the most threatened or or what was the most was the endangered land mammal in north america yeah the black-footed ferret black-footed ferret right and we have more here than any place else on the planet mm. within this canada basin badlands ecosystem and we do treat it as an ecosystem with you know the forest service lands and the badlands we work together with our biologists uh, out of the wall ranger district and yeah and uh, these another. animals don't see the boundaries that they we, we draw see. on a map. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> but we're doing well here, and we're we're really fortunate. And since plague came in two thousand and seven, you know, we did have a couple hundred or more animals throughout the Kanata Basin Badlands ecosystem. But back in '07, we were doing some coyote research, mm. and one of our biologists, our biotechs, then captured a coyote just south of the park boundary along the white river and it tested positive for plague and it wasn't it was within a year that plague bro broke out throughout the uh, prairie dog colonies and just mosaic stormed towards the park and eventually uh, decimated all the prairie dog towns within Kanata basin and within the uh, wilderness areas and mm -hmm. now the only places that we have prairie dogs a viable population large acreages are where we've applied delta dust this delta methrin it's an insecticide hmm. because the flea carries the bacteria it's a flea okay carries the plague yes has, has decimated them so yeah. we do a donut hole spray of this delta methrin and i was involved in that in 07 through 10 we contract it all out now it's a very laborious tedious process but we found now that the fleas are becoming resistant uh -oh. because it's like any insecticide, mosquitoes or whatever. Once sure. you spray it a lot and they'll, you know, they, they would put some in a Petri dish and they look dead and all of a sudden they'd be on their back and then they come alive, you know, mm. so. So they're so, building their own immunities, much like the sheep were. Yes. So, so yeah, rewinding a bit to when these black-footed ferret were actually designated as an extinct species. People thought they were gone completely, weren't they? Yes. That was in the late 70s, I believe. Yes. So yeah. maybe like 78, 79. Yeah, they hadn't been seen. There were a couple little populations or a couple animals in, in other parts of South Dakota, but then they thought they were wiped out totally until in Matitsi, Wyoming, you heard the story there. Mm -hmm. It's not far away either where the rancher's dog brought the the ferret to him and he was that's a funny looking critter and and i think he tossed it on the trash pile and his wife came home and said we're gonna take that to the taxidermist you know that's interesting and yeah get it mounted and then 
Fish and Wildlife Service came in and you know, that's where all so the, the ferrets... taxidermists know that, that something was different yeah. about this strange looking creature. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> and and the uh, game warden too and so it all worked together and uh, yeah, it was really an, an interesting story. Uh, brought but, it yeah. back from the brink. Yeah. And uh, you know, there were there was a learning curve there of captive breeding and captive propagation, which they still do. There's the, the lab there in Fort Collins and the, okay. the facility, and but uh, they've learned a lot over the years, you know, and the soft releases and the hard releases and wild kits, wild animals are better than, you know, they're they're the best, you know, whether, whether you're talking ferrets and, yeah. or turkeys or quail or anything, you know, they've tried that. And so, you know, we're really fortunate to have those animals. And when you're at the captive propagation facility in Fort Collins, they have they have all the animals, the females and the males, and they show what would what would be a good cross and what would be more diverse genetically if we could get this pair mating, you know. Mm-hmm. It's really fascinating how they've studied through all of that. The, the science of genetics, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it really is. Which is which is sometimes more like gambling than science, but yeah. Also, there's there is a science to it. There is, yeah. and what they've done a couple years ago, they did they turned the clock back. Hmm. They had some cryogenically frozen semen from those original Matizzi animals. Okay, and they used some of that to do some AI work, and so they didn't introduce any new genetics, but they turned the clock back again and started over with. You know, some what creatures. could have happened, kind of creating yeah. some simulations. Pretty amazing. Wow. And uh, and they did put some animals back on that original prairie dog colony where the original ferret population was found. They did that too. So that was a big thing. So with these prairie dogs, there is a connection there with the black-footed ferret, which maybe we didn't touch on, and the, the plague. The prairie dogs are the prey or one of the primary prey mm-hmm. for the the ferrets is it's that correct it's kind of an so, obligate species they prey upon and yeah. and uh, and they're carrying the plague at times yes with the fleas that they get the, get on them right. so okay and that that's what happens the the animals will will die you know mm-hmm. so we're we're looking to fight against the plague and as i said that's the only places where prey dogs are living now and we have a suite of tools we're experimenting with now we i have a couple research projects funded we have one ongoing now and looking at new dusting techniques new types of dust Uh, we have an oral vaccine spv a sylvatic plague vaccine which we give to the animals to the prairie dogs and sprinkle it along the prairie dog towns we vaccinate our ferrets at least we would try twice a year, live capture them and bring them back and put yeah. them under anesthesia. I say try, that has to be rather difficult to catch. How many ferrets yeah. are out there? Yeah. Do, do um, we have a number? Yeah, we have in uh, the Kanata Badlands ecosystem over 120 now, I believe. Oh, okay. We had 90 last year. We didn't, we didn't catch everything, but we have the largest number on the planet here. And this, this is the... The Mecca, if you mm-hmm. will. Yeah, but at one time we had over 224, 250 ferrets. We had a lot. But when the plague came through, we yeah, had that the, outbreak. Yeah, that really number, huh? killed a lot. And we did try to live trap some and put them in other non plague areas. But 
We're fighting the good fight there too. Yeah. <laughs> fighting the fight on many fronts with lots of different wildlife populations, which as we say, don't really exist within a vacuum. As much as you can fence the bison, you can't can't really fence in all these other populations. That's right. They don't yeah. know the boundary or the fence. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, I guess the extent at which the NPS manages these populations is something kind of new to to us and perhaps to our listeners. So the question then is why why manage these populations? Why is the NPS involved in in this yeah. so heavily? Oh, that's a great question. And I think um, one of the most important reasons, like the Blackfoot affair, we have a species there mm -hmm. that almost requires intensive management for it to be able to survive long term over the next one to 200 years for future generations. Yeah. And um, we're a national park. We like to see, I love to see things wild. And even in, in managing our bison population, we, we try to handle them uh, as least as possible, mm -hmm. you know, and, and uh, you know, if we don't need to touch an animal, we don't. And, uh, you know, we do let nature take its course and, you know, when things happen, unless it's something man-caused, a man-caused injury or, right. you know. So, um, uh, yeah, we've just found, and, and it's kind of evolved over my career as a biologist over the last 28, 30 years, where it's become more intensive for certain species. Yeah. And we just know it's a responsibility for the park to be able to, you know, we don't manage for hunting or for those, that kind of a philosophy, but we, we manage just for people to be able to have this great experience, you know, in the future yeah. to see uh, wildlife. Mm -hmm. So keeping these populations as natural and keeping their impact on the land as well, as natural as, as you can. Yes, as, as best just, we can do. <laughs> right. Just speaks to the, the preservation mission yes. of the NPS. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Were there any other animal topics that... I know we really focused on big wildlife, uh -huh. the, these three main populations, uh -huh. and your work obviously sure. has a larger scope than that. So is there anything else that we perhaps didn't talk about that... Well, we have like a large discuss. diversity of, of birds here and shorebirds. You, you come here and you, you, people are amazed. They're seeing long-billed curlews. They're seeing the American avocet. They're seeing all these different species of waterfowl. Mm. Where are we, you know? And, <laughs> and it's true. We have, a, a, you know, there's a lot of birders that come here that are totally amazed, you know, with bald and golden eagles and, you know, all the grassland bird species on top of that. And it's pretty amazing. Nice you know. for some great bird watching. Oh yeah. Do you have to kind of actively manage any of these populations, or they're just? We do a lot of surveying and monitoring through okay. the uh, inventory and monitoring program. A lot of, a lot of active monitoring. Of course, you know, grassland bird species have been on the decline. Certain species, and yeah. so we're we're kind of uh, taking that vital sign, if you will, and monitoring in a place that's wild and we know that okay this is this is where the trend's going you know right. something's going on somewhere we are we monitor our air shed we have a class one air shed which is pure because of the adjacency to the wilderness we have the very pure low 
particulate matter. You know, we mm. publish that. We work work through that. So we monitor the air. You know, we've done a little bit of herpetology work. You know, and herpetology. Uh, yeah, I'm not familiar with um, the study. Um, the snakes and the reptiles ah, and okay. all those critters. And um, you know, not only that, but uh, we've actually heard there are. There's good fishing here. There Very is, cool. yeah. You he wouldn't believe that either. Here. Yeah, there's, there's, there is good fishing, you know, around here in the, in the old CCC dams, you know, mm -hmm. and yeah, we've done a lot of, kind of monitoring surveys, uh, butterflies, Lepidoptera. I had a fellow, okay. a retired fishery biologist, do a butterfly survey here at the park for me one year. It's on a shoestring budget, but. He found uh, hundreds of species. We've we've uh, had Diane Larson with the USGS look at pollinators and thousands of different little bee species that were never known to be, exist, you know, mm -hmm. and went through all of the pollination web and, oh, wow. and you know how a lot of bee species, native bee species, are declining. So yeah, we've yeah. done a lot of baseline studies on that. So. Yeah, so much more than the big three, you know, yeah. bighorn, bison, and black-footed ferrets, you know, the bees. But those species kind of rise to the top, being charismatic megafauna and sure. being endangered. Endangered species always rise to the top of that management kind of, you know. Uh, the radar there. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah makes sense. You've been here at the Badlands National Park for some time now. Uh, we talked about it nearly 20 years. Yes. When is that that anniversary, by the way? Is it coming up pretty <laughs> I guess that'll be soon? next year. Yeah, yeah, I'm not long away. <laughs> so ni 19 years for uh -huh. you here. Uh -huh. So what is your favorite thing about Badlands National Park in your time here? You know, I just love the landscapes here. I take a lot of pictures of hmm. sunrises and sunsets. Oh, yeah. I'm up early and, uh, you know, and the different seasons, the Badlands during different times of the day, it's just amazing how the shadows and the colors, you know, sometimes I can look out this window here and I can look at that Badlands against the blue sky and it almost looks like it's cut. Hmm. You know, it's such a, an abrupt between that stark brown and you know the striations and then the blue blue sky we have some incredible views here it's really wild you know all the seasons have their own uniqueness to it but i think that's and to be able to see all these different wildlife species you know at all different times of the year sure and it's uh heavily visited in the summer but winter time it's it's a mecca here you know mm -hmm. it's just lovely to be here you're you're in a wilderness you know yeah yeah it can get perhaps a little rough on the far ends of the seasons at times but yeah, it's it still can get brutal <laughs> still still beautiful nonetheless that's right dress warm <laughs> <laughs> so um what feelings come up when you think of the badlands why do you feel it's a special place well you know i've I have uh, strong emotion to this place. I, you know, I think of, I think of the Native Americans that were once here, and mm. you know, all the, when when bison roamed free, when there were millions, and the, they traversed across uh, this continent. And then, you know, I think about I've I've read all the Mountain Man books and the, all the exploration, you know, and yeah. and uh, you know how they came here, and they said, "Oh, wow, this is 
bad land. It's rough to cross. It's uh, the the water is too too thick to drink, too thin to farm. You know that the feelings I have is you know, and, and then as you think about the history on up to the homesteading age, you know how people tried to carve out 160 acres here mm -hmm. and make a living, and they couldn't. You know and and then the Dust Bowl, the whole history of the place, and and yet here we are, and we have a, a, a national park that's the largest in the Midwest region. It's one of the first largest parks that people from the East hit. And if they run down the, the, the landscape on the 240 loop, and now pretty soon they're gonna be able to see bison, they see bighorn sheep, and mm -hmm. people are just uh, totally amazed by this place. And, and uh, you know they'll want to see the ferrets. I said, uh, be up at two in the morning probably to see them. You know, <laughs> but uh, you know I, I do have strong feelings about making a contribution to the American people, right. and uh, I want my kids and their kids to be able to experience this. And I think you know that's why everybody, almost everybody, works for the Park Service. They don't work for it, you know, to make a lot of money, but they have that commitment, and they know. They're going to make a contribution with their life towards something that's bigger than them. It's going to last longer than them. You know, here we are as an agency, you know, uh, we're here. We, we still are, you know, and went through ups and downs over the last, you know, hundred or so years when we were, and here we are, we're going, we're going forward. Going forward and preserving for future generations. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so... That speaks, of course, again to the, the mission of the NPS. And uh, we've heard it. Every park ranger mm -hmm. knows the mission. But uh, to you personally, what is the importance of the National Park Service? Why is it important to preserve it? Just so we do have some of these areas that are untouched by human development and a place where you can go. And it's kind of like the wilderness here. You know, we have. 64,000 acres of wilderness. And one of the best reasons I can think of of having it is just because it's there. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of other wildernesses too I'll never visit, but I know they're there. Yeah. And that does my heart good to know there's places I can go that are wild and free and, and uh, there for us to enjoy yeah. and our children and our children's children. Yeah. <laughs> For many visitors, the animals are a huge draw to the national parks. And because of rangers like Eddie, we get to have that experience. On our trip through Badlands National Park, we saw young lambs discovering the world for the first time with their mothers. And soon, the bison will be just as prolific as the bighorn sheep in the park today. Ranger Eddie gives us a reminder that most park rangers aren't in it for the money but rather to help cultivate an environment for the American people to learn from their national parks. It's through this dedication that we get to explore places like the Badlands today and experience the distinctive habitats each park is known for. If you enjoyed what you heard, review us on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider to help more people find the show. For more behind-the-scenes and bonus episodes, join our Patreon community. As little as $2 a month gains you access to our community. A link is posted in our show notes or visit podcastswithparkrangers.com. Stay with us through the final minutes for a short preview of our next episode.
We like to highlight on our show ways that a typical park visitor can give back to their national parks. All of our public lands are in search of volunteers. Whether it's with the Bureau of Land Management, the U.S. Forest Service, or the National Park Service, which includes Badlands National Park, there's probably a volunteer opportunity in your area. Find out more information by visiting volunteer.gov. Even though we interview park rangers, we are not affiliated with the National Park Service, and any views expressed are not necessarily those of the Park Service. We're just fans of the national parks, like you. Coming up in episode 14 of Podcasts with Park Rangers. What's it like to live with a national park as your backyard? And for that to be the only life you've known? We sit down with Badlands National Park's ranger Aaron Kay to cover his unique story, life growing up in the National Park Service. <laughs> 